give them. You listen to Irish Radio Canada's home and abroad. And the fabric of Irish life and Irish society, as we all know, has changed dramatically over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And um, what were institutions are no longer institutions, and new institutions have been established. But in many parts of Ireland, there were what were either known as asylums, or in some places, the red brick, mental hospitals, and there's, they, they were dotted throughout the country. In the west of Ireland, Banasloe was home to St. Bridget's, and it was famous and infamous for many, but was also a sanctuary for many. And I'm sitting across from Sean Tully, and Sean spent many years working at St. Bridget's, and we're going to have a little chat about just how the institution at the time served a need in Irish society and how things have changed how that function is now being met in Irish society. Sean, welcome. Thanks very much, uh, Austin. Delighted to see you. Um, just for a briefing, I started in St. Bridget's in 1963. Right. January 1963. And uh, I started as what was known at that time as a temporary substitute. In the event of outbreaks of flu or otherwise, they picked young fellas around that might have been looking for a job. And I think my dad had mentioned to Bill Kane that I was kind of interested. So he came out of a Wednesday night and told me to start on Thursday morning. And as my dad said to me afterwards, at least you'll get to see what it's like and you'll know what it's like. Right. So that was the 17th or 18th of January 1963. And I retired in uh, November 2002. Right. Now, prior to 1963, like these institutions in the format that they were, where the, the one here in Banaslow is a big limestone building. Yeah. When was that? It was, it was built in 1833 as the Connaught uh, Lunatic Asylum for the entire counties of Connaught. And afterwards then Sligo and Leitrim were accommodated in um, St. Columbus in Sligo. Right. And then St. Mary's was opened for County Mayo. And briefly, um, there was a psychiatric hospital in Castlery as well, but it catered more for the uh, TB outbreak of the 40s and the 30s. Right. So that Banlaslow would have been the major psychiatric hospital, uh, as it was known at the time, for the entire county of Galway. And as a psychiatric hospital, psychiatry as, as we know it today certainly didn't exist then. No. In many cases, people were institutionalised for what would have been, again in current terminology, would have been very treatable, but ended up in the asylum. Yes, that's, that's true. There were, there was, I suppose there were four or five categories. There was the category that was genuinely psychiatric. Mm -hmm. Genuinely psychiatric. And that would have the clinical signs of psychiatry, the various depressions, agitations, mania, the whole lot. But then there were others of, of we'll say, of maybe a low IQ, uh, male, female, who were living at home and were sometimes in the way now. That's the right. unfortunate part about it. Yeah. And uh, there might have been some ladies as well, or some young women, who maybe weren't careful with themselves without being any more... Got themselves into trouble. Got themselves into trouble, and sometimes they were admitted to Bridges. Right. I met a lady one time who became very depressed after the breakup of a relationship, and uh, she, she never left Bridges afterwards. Right. And then there were people in it who were quite difficult in their younger years. And as the, the disease eased off and they became better, 
they had a very independent life later on in St. Bridget's. Okay. So th- there was many, many, there was many, many categories in it. There were people then who, who had nowhere, ho- no home to go to. The home place was gone, or maybe the younger, bro- the, the, some of the family members had, had married and there was no place for them to go home to. And there was quite a few from Connemara as well, from the, the Gaeltacht. And um, as an aside, those of us who had an interest in the Irish language learned Irish with them and practiced Irish with them. Right. And we were able to speak to them in their own language, which was nice. Yeah. So, Sean, in a lot of ways, then St. Bridget's and other similar institutions were havens of last resort where, uh, for a variety of reasons, someone had nowhere else to go. That's right. The where, and that was the tragedy of it. Yeah. And then in latter years, we'll say, well, I wouldn't say latter years now because you're talking about the 70s and the 80s, when the rehabilitation programs started. Yeah. And uh, they started buying houses and getting them out into the community. That's when the, the, the institutions have come into play with them because were, a lot of them were unable, unable to manage that independent living. Right. And if you stand at the front gate, the present front gate of St. Bridget's, and look down to your right, there was a ward there called Ten. And there was a lady employed as a home economics teacher. And three or four every day were allocated to go out to the shop, buy your own food. They weren't told what food to get and to cook it for themselves in a means of training them to help them when they went home or when they went out to a house to be able to look after themselves, make their own beds. You didn't make the beds for them. Mm-hmm. You might have to tell them now and again to make the bed, but mm-hmm. you didn't do it for them. You encouraged them. It was all a form of rehabilitation, and it meant that quite a few people you know, were able to leave what I would describe as the sanctuary of the hospital mm-hmm. and move out. That's the good side. Yes. The other side is there were a few who weren't and who didn't. And the proximity of the river to the hospital took its toll. Took its toll. Right. I don't want to say any more because yeah, yeah. it's so sad. But I, I can recall one individual, a lovely guy, went out to town every Saturday, do all the messages for you, was going out to this place on his own and didn't go. So, Sean, likewise then, when you define the, the different personalities mm. that would have come through the gates of St. Bridget's, early on, before modern medicine came in, when someone came in and they were admitted, treatments have changed also. So in many cases, for some people, unfortunately, ended up nearly just being lapped up because there wasn't much else. That's, that would be correct. They tried various treatments. I never saw the insulin programs taking place which were probably the forerunner, but I did see the ECT, electroconvulsive treatment. Right. Uh, it was detested by a lot of patients who were terrified of it. Yeah. But it's fair to say for some, for some, particularly those in a very deep depression or, or, or mania, it helped to cure them and to get them back right. Yeah. Some would argue that it had done brain damage. I don't know. Yeah. There were people nowadays who were violently opposed to any form of ECT yeah. just seen this shock treatment was, was a minor word for what they called it yes. but we would have seen instances where it helped people to improve and to recover the other one would be in the 60s I suppose the psychotropic drugs the, the melodils uh, the lergactyls and those and the triplosol and the serenase and all those medications that were there at that time they became more into prominence 
and they were able to control the patients, we'll say, from they were able to get them out of the depression or control the manic situation. Right. And the other one would be that, I suppose, maybe the 70s, the injections, the neuroleptic injections at the time, they were monthly or weekly, and they, were, they varied, there were many types of them in it. They helped people for, to have a reasonably normal way of life reasonably normal I would say now they helped them out I, I remember used to visit a lady out the country and she always maintained that the injection on Friday helped her to go to mass and do things at the weekend there were obviously both outpatients and residents oh there was there was you yeah. uh, from about 1964 or 5 there were three uh, community nurses appointed and as people were being discharged they visited them they sometimes brought them back into hospital, but they also brought them home. Right. And uh, that would be the forerunner, I suppose, of what could be described as the community development of the psychiatric services. And then they started having the day centres. Day centres sprung up in Montpellier and Chum and Hedford and Lochray and Ballinasloe and Pertumna. Mm-hmm. And the advent of those day centres would have eroded into the work of the community nurses. Okay. Because each day centre would have its catchment area. Mm-hmm. And Bridget's covered a catchment area, I suppose, of maybe east of the Corrib. Ginvara, down into Hedford, east of the Corrib, would be covered in what would be described as the St. Bridget's area. And there were nine community nurses in it at one stage. Mm-hmm. And then they went down to six or seven. And there's, there's an, I don't know, is there anybody in it now? But what you did, you met people in schools, or you went out and you visited people at their own house. And sometimes uh, by visiting somebody in an area, you were alerted to somebody else in an area who might need a bit of treatment or might need a few days in hospital or uh, who might need talking to. And as a result of that, you were able to go and meet them and meet their families and advise them what they should do. Back then, Sean, while things are still not, they're far from ideal, there was a huge stigma for anybody if they went to St. Bridges. Oh, there was. Uh, like, where is Sean gone to? He's in Banderslow. Or, or and that's all they said. It wasn't, there was a St. Bridge. Also, no, no. I had to say it was there in Banderslow. Yeah, Banderslow. Is, there, there's, a famous, there's a famous story told about another individual, which I can't relate on radio. Um, but all he, he said was oh, he's gone to Banderslow, and he wasn't, of course, but uh, he was working in Banderslow. But the, the connotation was there. He's gone yeah. to Banderslow. Yeah. You should have been in a long go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that was the connotation at the time. It was, and I suppose um, it was there. I would have been one of the few now who started to work there without anybody belonged to me in it. Really? Oh, yeah. I would be one of the few from town, from the idea of town now, who would work there. I had nobody. My father and my mother never worked. There was quite a lot of staff who come in from the, say, 20-mile radius of Anasome, from Newbridge, Pertumna, Lochray, Athenoy. Right. And uh, that catchment area came into work on it. And maybe they had a mother or, a, or an aunt or somebody that worked in the job and they came in themselves. Now, that was in the older days, right. in my time. Right. Uh, in latter years then, as nursing became a more uh, different profession and it became organised in the universities and that, right. uh, some done psychiatric and the others done general. Yeah. But in the old days, I would describe it as that a lot of them, there weren't that many from town actually Work. nurses. nurses no. So in many ways you were apprenticed rather than trained. That's right. Um, I started in January 63 as I said earlier on. I started lectures in 64 and I, I done my finals in November 1966. 
and uh, became permanent. I got notice of, of my uh, exam results in, in the last week in, in December 1966 and uh, I, came, I got the notice of being per- appointed as a permanent officer in, in January 1966. And a permanent officer, well, was that in nursing or was it? Oh, that was appointed at the staff of St. Bridget's Hospital as a psychiatric nurse. Right. Now, traditionally, and this is far from being sexist, but traditionally the perception was in Ireland back in the 60s, 70s, nurses were females. Yeah. Would psychiatric nursing have been different across psychiatric, the Psychiatric nursing was different that time in that it was predominantly male. But there was always, uh, there was always a section, uh, it wouldn't be, no, maybe predominant is the wrong word now, majority will say yeah. male. Uh, then as the Equality Acts came into place, and uh, it meant that the, the positions as they became filled, permanent positions of ward sisters and all those could sometimes be filled by, by women. But in my time, we'd say, you take my panel of 1963, there was 18 men. Right. There was 20-something on the panel for ladies, I understand. Now... 64, I done my finals in 66. I did not achieve a permanent uh, charges position until the 90s. Whereas any of the ladies that were on my panel had all been either ward sisters or deputy ward sisters before that. Because as the women moved out because of the marriage Mm. act at the time mm-hmm. the marriage ban as yep. they called it yep. uh, the younger women became promoted mm-hmm. we were 20 and 30 years later right. and then when it was our turn to be promoted we we had to succumb to the or to, to the interview stages and it went on it went on merit and right. some right. of us didn't we weren't happy with it right. We won't go into that. Okay, let's go back to the institution itself. And and you mentioned earlier on how you had different personalities uh, who came through the doors. And, you know, from the what would have been the manic depressive, those with serious mental illness, to those who unfortunately had a social illness. And they may have blotted their copybook and Mm -hmm. uh, this was a suitable way of dealing with it, mm. as we say in the context of the times. The challenges that were faced within institutional life, because again, back in the context of the times, these buildings were sparse, they were austere. Um, there were they were sparse and they were austere, but there was such a variety. Um, I start with the with the old building. There was there was five or six uh, six or seven wards and male and six or seven wards female. Uh, one of those wards now would be where you'd have a highly disturbed, very manic, very difficult patient, mm-hmm. and they went from that to the nicest. Mm-hmm. Upstairs in ward two was the grandest guys of all time, right. and it was the same on the on the women's side. They went down. They worked in the laundry. They worked in the kitchens. They worked in the wards. Uh, they had a limited. They, they had limited freedom. In that they went out and about their business, they were able to go down to the canteen and that sort of stuff. You went out then to the Pines. The Pines was acquired from the church authorities in the twenties. And that was where Garbley started. And that's where Garbley started. Yeah. It was originally a college for Protestant college for teaching Irish to the Protestant clergy. 
and then was brought over by the church and the church handed it over to the hospital about 1925 and there was the guts of a hundred men there and they were lovely fellas they worked in the garden they worked in the farmyard they were uh, you know the vast majority of them did they done business in and out of town they done messages for guys in and out of town because there was no canteen there. It had its own kitchen. They brought in all the stuff from the stores. Right. It was a way of life with a lot of them. Yeah. And it was a nice way of life in a sense in that they had, they had a certain freedom to move back in and out. Now, there were others who didn't want to and didn't stir out. There were a small number, but there mm-hmm. were quite a number who worked in the land. I remember about the 60s, middle 60s, 67, in fact. Um, you'd have 10 or 12 guys with you and um, you go to wherever you were designated to go on the land and uh, pick potatoes this time of the year or so corn I remember one day we were we were cutting the corn McHugh was Reaper and Binder was cutting the corn there where the industrial estate is now mm-hmm. and um, I think I had about 10 guys with me and as he was cutting and we were making small hand stacks Right. And because I lived in a small little place and Dad showed us how to do all those things, I was directing them up along and I was making the stacks when the bosses walked over the wall and saw us in action. So I was <laughs> I was fair nearby for a while after that. But what I am saying to you is that they had freedom. Then on the way back to the Pines, they might have a few pounds or a couple of shillings gathered and they'd go into Stanton's and they'd have two drinks and they'd come yeah. back in home. Right. That was the lovely side of it. Right. Then where BSED is... There was, when I, in about 1964, I worked on it, and there was the goods of 90 semi-invalided men there. Mm. Various ranges of medical difficulties, you know, but mostly invalided now. Okay. And, but not uh, necessarily mentally... Not necessarily mentally ill. Yes. No, right. no, no, no. So was, more physical than, than mental? It was more physical than mental, it okay. was. Yeah. And uh, there were six nurses working there, and that was difficult at times. Right. The middle floor then was 50 or 60 men who, I think there were about 50 in it, and uh, they, were, they were, we'll say, they weren't ones that you could trust to let out. Yeah. Were, a lot of them didn't know where they were going, they didn't know where they were, they weren't able to do much for themselves. So they had, there was a lot of work involved, there was four nurses there, a lot of work involved, getting them up, getting them clean, getting them washed, shaved and kept right. And then on the top floor, there was about, there could be 30, but there was rarely any more than 30 in it. And they were a convalescent, a kind of a long-stay convalescent ward right. for the admission. The guys that took the two or three months to get better before they went home. Okay. Or two or three weeks, or four, well, four or five weeks, maybe. So that was that was that was three different groups of people right. in one in one building, and that they were so varied. And the guys in the top and the guys in the bottom were so nice. It was so different. It was so varied. So, Sean, now in in modern terminology, you now we're we here, and everybody is very familiar with Alzheimer's yeah. and dementia, and a lot of other terminology that yes. defines mental challenges. Back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, this terminology wasn't out there. No, not the Alzheimer's one, even though there were, there were you would see from, we'll say, the patients who had schizophrenia and so forth, yeah. that some of them did uh, get dementia later on. Right. The illness would have, 
or they always said the illness caused it. Yeah. But anyway, it did occur, and they would be mute enough. There would be there, there were guys I know. One particular guy, without mentioning names, who 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 uh, was a good talker in his younger days, but in his latter years, because uh, I knew him very well, he was yeah. a neighbour, um, could not talk right. and didn't talk. Yeah. And there were some who never talk, who never spoke. Yeah. With the illness, you know, and uh, but then Bridges had a, had a lovely Alzheimer's unit back in the in the eighties, and uh, they got all the modern things in it, and quite a lot of people were admitted in. I don't know why they didn't continue it, but that was his changing times. Changing times. Also, for many who would have had addiction issues, yeah. That would have been where where yeah. Banislaw had a, had a marvelous reputation uh, with uh, with addiction. They, they started an addiction unit around the eighties, I would imagine, seventies or eighties, and uh, people came from all over the country to it. So there was a very 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 well known doctor and three three well known nurses who were addiction counsellors afterwards mm-hmm. and created a great imputation for themselves. So Dr. Brown, Eileen Brown, the Lord Mercer, right. and Liam Curley and Martin Stack and Mary O'Connell, right. they they would have been the forerunners of that. Right. And then uh, that was going well. But around the early nineties, the alcoholics in particular did not want to be brought into psychiatric hospitals. Right. They wanted their cause treated in, in a general hospital yeah. but they had to be detoxed at times yeah. that's a medical procedure yeah. at the best and the worst of times yeah. and sometimes deaths have occurred during the, the, the uh, actual procedure itself for a day or two they mightn't, you know, you couldn't know what happened heart conditions or whatever yeah. but anyway they did not want to be brought into psychiatric hospitals so about 94 the changes occurred in that right. they wanted to be treated at home come into the unit from home and be treated and, and uh, detoxed in the general hospital right. or by the GP. Okay. So that took the edge off that. And it was a pity because Bridges at the time now had a great reputation. People were coming from all over the country to it. Right. And certainly those three or four people that I have mentioned deserve great credit for the work they put into it. Because I think others in the similar vein would have been well, like the John of Gods and that's and right. St. Patrick's and that's right, and Clunwira and Gordon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They were they and were they're still they're still they're still going. They are yeah. they are, but they were they were independent of the HSE and all that sort of stuff. You know, right. some of them. And so going back to the 1830s, and you said this was again an evolution out uh, during the famine. Would it have been used in the workhouse format, or was it used in... Well, uh, Jimmy Crahan wrote a book, The Lord of Mercy, a few years ago, and he states that in the, 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 the workhouse was built in Banislaw about 1840. Yeah. And it said there was a small number of deaths in the psychiatric hospital in comparison to the 800 at one stage that died in the workhouse. Right. But I would imagine maybe... And I only say maybe the reason for that would be Bridges had a fine farm. Right. And in a sense they were self-sufficient. Because I talked to you before about the guys that worked in the Pines. Yeah. That land in Crigan, that land in the vicinity of the hospital and they tilled it. So therefore they had their own vegetables, their own potatoes, their own cabbages and stuff like that. And their own cattle. The farmyard was there. Right. So therefore there were probably a certain amount of self-sufficiency there. Right. Other than that, I don't know. And would that have been the norm, do you think, in a lot of it was. mental institutions? It was. Like, yeah. It was. Oh, it was. Any of them that, and most of them had a bit of land, because, you see, nobody would build near them. 
and uh, I mean they have a land stretching from uh, from once you cross over the bridge at Banislaw there after after the after the river from yeah. that down to Top McConnell Road and back out the back of Roscarn that if I, I think they had five or six hundred acres of land. I'm open to correction on that yeah, now, yeah. but and who would have given that land or would it have been there? Well, according to Jimmy Crahan's book, uh, the Lord Lancarty would have given the land, but he also states that. Lord Clancarty wasn't all that happy. He was very powerful at that time now, Clancarty was. He was a decent enough landlord. But they say he was, he, according to Crahan's book anyway, that he, he was unhappy about the psychiatric hospital going there because he didn't attend any of the meetings, even though he was made a member of the Board of Governors. Right. And there were 25 boards of, uh, members of the Board of Governors, and they were all landowners, big landowners like O'Malley and Mayo and all those. They weren't poor people or they weren't right. ordinary people. They were the landlords of the time. Right. But Clancarty is supposed to have not attended many of the meetings. So he got volunteered. <laughs> he, well, <laughs> it looks as if he was told, uh, see, I think King George or some of them had a psychiatric illness at the time, and right. maybe, and see, Clancarty was quite pow- powerful in, in, in England at the time. Right. So, Sean, then at the height of the employment at St. Bridget, how many would have been employed, would you say? Well, as far as I remember, there was about 600 and something. In 1971, there were 1,500 patients in Bridges. Right. I happened to work in the head's office at the time, head nurse's office. You're looking at what? Would it be 800 odd men and, and, and 500, 600 or 700 odd women. Right. And uh, after that, then they began to decline. Yeah. But I think there's one thing, and I've said this before at an, an, at an English um, uh, conference a few years ago. It's very hard to estimate the social impact that Bridget's made on Ballinus Law because both. Bridget's and Portiuncla were both nursing hospitals, mm-hmm. one psychiatric, the other general. Mm-hmm. And you take all the, the particularly Portiuncla, the women who came into town and married locally, mm-hmm. and you take on the Bridget side of it, all the men who came into town up to the 80s maybe, and married locally, and mm-hmm. settled down locally. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to quantify the social impact that it made on town. My mum mentions that Banaslow, that the employment uh, at St. Bridget's and, and particularly at St. Bridget's, that it was easier for a nurse at St. Bridget's to be able to get a mortgage to buy a house because they had a steady income. That's right. Oh, that's true. And you see, they all built locally and uh, the families lived locally. And uh, that would be true. Mm-hmm. That, that was always the case as far as I know. Because the steady income was there and you rarely got sacked. <laughs> <laughs> now, while we talked about you know the the seriously depressed uh, and the serious with mental illness right up to those who had more of a social issue uh, and all the ranges in between, you know fifteen hundred people that were classified as uh, having mental issues in uh, the west of Ireland uh, as time progressed, you say that gradually the population declined in the in the hospital because mm-hmm. there were alternates. Would you say that the alternates have adequately catered to the mental emotional needs yeah. of the, the people in a way that, while I won't say St. Bridget's did it 100%, yeah. but that that type of an environment yeah. is actually needed? Yeah. For well, for those people. of us who work there and people like myself that were involved in public life for a while, um, the demise of, of St. Bridget's, as we call it, is a very sore point. Mm-hmm. 
because there is a space for the person who is depressed mm-hmm. at a certain level of age, whether it is old age or not, you know, whatever form of depression it is, or ladies or men that has somewhere to go to for two or three days or maybe a week. Mm-hmm. Or the young person that's feeling suicidal, and they're the ones I feel sorry for, mm-hmm. who have had suicidal tendencies and uh, maybe going through the hoops to get to somewhere. That's the one I'm sorry for. Mm-hmm. Because we've all met people and families, and they're all, we've all encountered people who have committed suicide on our watch. Because none of us can say we didn't. Mm-hmm. We did. And uh, all I would say is one person committed it for me when I was out in the community and uh, not that far away another a lady was going to do it. She intended doing it and I prevented her from doing it. Many others will tell the same story. And the two first Christmas cards I get at Christmas and I'm 15, 16 years retired right. are, are from those families. Right. But what I am saying is that, that acute forum of depression mm-hmm. or suicidal ideation or any of those I don't think there's a place for them now adequately enough, adequately sharp enough and talking about that because <coughs> you know anything we're talking about here is not peculiar to the west of Ireland, it's not peculiar to Ireland there are similar issues on both sides of the Atlantic yeah. the incidence of suicide in Ireland is very high at this point in time in the last number of years and to the extent that you know, we have in Ottawa even, um, and in various parts of Canada, the walk darkness into light, is, mm. uh, is people participate in that, yeah. the same as here, uh, yeah. for suicide and self-harming prevention. And the sheds have started up yeah. as, as a, a, a tool, yeah. because there is nowhere for an awful lot of people yeah, to yeah. go. And there's a real struggle going on as regards where people should be going and how, how to cope. Well, I think that's one of the main... Maybe the mobile phone has, has made us less communicative. Mm. I think the younger, younger generation are not as, we'll say, they're not as open to talk. They, are, they talk amongst themselves, but they're not as open to talking to their peers, their parents, or somebody else uh, about how they feel or what's going through their mind. Now, in the old days of my generation, we had an uncle or an aunt or a neighbour who'd spot for you, who'd look out for you. That's no longer. People have gone very independent and and um, kind of, I don't know what's the word to use, but they're, they're kind of, they've set up an independent republic of their own mm-hmm. in that they don't look at how anybody else thinks about them. They're only thinking about themselves. Right. Maybe it's the lack of religion. I don't know. You know, we 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 grew up in a very <laughs> religious community, whether we liked it or not, whether we tolerated the religion or not, or turned against it later on or not. Right. But religion was part. We went to mass every Sunday. It was part of everyday life. And I suppose there would be many that would say that that could have been the cause. <laughs> in some cases, <laughs> that's arguable but, too. We won't. But, but I would say that well, maybe religion, maybe the the, the one terminology I think. Yeah. What I hear regularly, and it cuts across the board, is there's a lack of spirituality. Mm. I suppose that's the word to use. That's the um, word to use. But you know, it's it's a pity because <coughs> there are so many gay, there's sports out there, there are so many organisations out there who are the Samaritans and others who are dying to help, mm-hmm. and and they're doing tremendous work. You'll hear and you'll be conscious of, you know, young people who have committed suicide in recent times, and it's so sad. Mm-hmm. And you'd love to... I mean, an awful lot of studies have taken place across Ireland and I'm sure across Canada as well to try and establish why 
Quran is 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 that, and it seems to be higher among young males yes. than even young females. It does. I don't know why it is. It's hard to figure it out. And we have three, we have kids of our own, two boys, and with three kids, the girl and two boys, but they're now in their one in his late thirties, another in his forties. But you, 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 it's hard to figure out why mm. the why it occurs. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's lack of employment. Maybe it's lack of belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't well, know when, when you talk about belonging, let's go back now to St. Bridget's and sense that that very concept, because many of the people who may have found themselves institutionalized would have come from an isolated situation. Yeah. Would you say that the institution provided them with a sense of belonging? Oh, it did. Without a shadow or doubt, it did. Because, first of all, they were dressed. Yeah. They had a very careful routine. They got up at such a time in the morning, they were fed. And they were fairly well fed. Right. And they had a routine all the day. Right. If the, then the advent, we'll say, of the part of the rehabilitation process in the, in the middle 60s with the, with, the, with the occupational therapy places in all the psychiatric hospitals. Nurses were sent away and trained in St. Joseph's School of Occupational Therapy in Dublin and came back and, and worked there, uh, creating little jobs. They were menial in ways. But there were money, there were activity, yeah. and there were a source of, I suppose, enjoyment. And for some, in a sense of accomplishment. And, and for some, a sense of accomplishment is right. And they had their own few, they got paid at the end of the, of the week, right. and they had their own few shillings, and, and it helped them. It helped them in some way towards, there's no shadow of doubt at all, that uh, they had, uh, uh, some of them had a contentment about them that was there because everything was done for them. So, Sean... In Banislaw itself then, while St. Bridget's was over the other side of the river, um, would you say that there was an empathy in any way among the people of Banislaw uh, that this institution existed and that it brought benefit to the town and that there was a recognition that it was an, an integral part of what was life yeah. then. Well, it was, uh, there was a huge empathy. I think there was a huge empathy. Um, I was elected to the town council on six six or seven occasions. I was defeated once. That was my own fault. But uh, what I am saying is I never found any animosity towards me in the, or the job. Right. Um, they all knew where I worked. Yeah. Nobody ever said to me it was a disadvantage. Not so much that that either, but you know, while we talked in a way how much of a stigma stigma it was, yeah. would you say that within the community, because the hospital was actually sited here, that there may have been a better, well, even it, subconscious understanding? Yeah. Maybe maybe there was, but there was definite recognition of its 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 social and its employment. Uh, background or yeah. the, the, um, the, the it's, it's, it's social and, and employment contribution to town right because you must remember like quotations went out for goods and services yeah and the, the locals quoted for it yeah and uh, any of the businesses and I could mention some of them we won't uh, always quoted for it and, and uh, business done and meats and vegetables and, and clothes and all that sort of stuff and in latter years, patients went out, some of them, and bought their own clothes from the... So, on that aspect of it as well then, were there any opportunities or were there any businesses locally that gave even small employment opportunities to... Oh, they did. As, as, as the rehabilitation programs started, right. 
one would have to say Gil Mertens were very good. Mm-hmm. Joe Murray, the late Joe Murray in River Street, a grain merchant, mm-hmm. very good. The factories always took on one or two. Right. I can. There's a few more now that if I could think of them. Yeah. But definitely Square D used to take them on. I think AT Cross took on one or two. Yeah. But definitely the smaller, we'll say, maybe businesses like Joe Murray's and, uh, and Gil Martin's. They always took on somebody, Phil and Petrel, or there was always two or three working in Joe Murray's. Right, so that, in, in effect, and the slow business community understood the social responsibility. They did, and there was also, there was, it would also be fair to say that there'd be one or two guys who would have worked locally with farmers. They wouldn't work in an institution or in a, in a, in a, in a factory, but they'd worked out in the land with other farmers, and, and they enjoyed it, and they went there every day, and, and so forth. So Sean, we've moved on to where it's now closed up up there and times have changed and are we better off? I don't know whether we're better off. We probably are better off. I, I think the you know, the demise of the old institutions I don't need any harm. Right. I don't know has its replacement been adequate enough or not. I'm retired now fifteen years. When you retire, you retire. Yeah. And I'd be one of those guys that when I would retire, I did retire. Right. But at the same time, um, I always feel that there's no, there's no place, in my view, for the immediate acute illness, which can affect anybody from right. time to time. Now, a certain amount will be done in Portiuncla, and they can go in out of Portiuncla. But I have often felt myself, you go into the A&E departments across the world now, are overcrowded. Mm-hmm. They're overcrowded. Mm-hmm. And if you go in at 9 or 10 o'clock at night in an agitated state or in a very nervous state, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the proper place for a psychiatric illness to be treated. Well, I think it'd be fair to say, would it, that the staff there have not been trained um, specifically? They would, but if you're waiting round and waiting round like everybody else has to wait round, it's, it's getting more difficult. They're very, very conscious of themselves. Yes. No, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean mean that, like, if I go in with a broken leg, you know, the staff I'm going to deal with know what to do with a broken leg. Whereas if I go in and I'm getting more agitated and more uncomfortable with my surroundings, they may not necessarily know how to do it. They may not. They may not. So the incidence of mental illness and the impact of mental illness has not gone away. The way of handling it has changed. In many ways, it would be fair to say that when these institutions existed, there was a more of a concerted effort at handling it. I'm not saying it was a solution, Mm. but there was actually more of a hands-on. Whereas in many ways now, there's an awful lot of people have nowhere to go. That's true, but in the old days, people were maybe admitted to institutions and it was was wrong. They they definitely stayed there too long and in some instances stayed there forever. That's wrong. That was wrong. But it was the, the the time, it was the norm at the time. Right. Nowadays, I would say, as and as I saw developing uh, before I retired, you know, people who who um, maybe admitted to bridges for two or three days would be sent out to the day, sent home and told to come into the day centre in Montpellier, Chum, or Headford, or wherever. Right. And they were brought into it, and with the result that they were able to recover that way without having to be all the time in the, in, in the hospital itself. Right. And I'd say that's the way it's drifting on. I mean, psychiatric hospitals right across the world are closing. Yes, yes. And the old big institutions are closing. Yes. 
the one I, the one I'm fearful of is, and I suppose the Barcelona reminds us of it, is the people who 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 are, are out to to do harm to people, mm-hmm. or maybe to do harm to others. Mm-hmm. Do you know they are the ones that is very hard to um, quantify. You know. They were well controlled in bridges in the old days or in any of the other psychiatric hospitals. So particularly like someone who may have serious schizophrenia. That's right. And who might believe that everybody else is against them. Or that there's someone talking to them. Uh, and tell, in, hear advices to yeah. do this and to do commit harm or to commit harm to somebody. They're the ones that's the difficult one to quantify now because the ordinary straightforward depression or a bit of agitation by and large can be treated with medication now. Yeah. And, 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 and a certain amount of kindness along with it. Yeah. But that other one is... That's the one that's going to be very, very hard to, to... And in a way, as a society, we have not, as yet, found or come up with what would be, uh, I suppose, a suitable alternative. No. Yeah. I don't think so. You know, Sean, I know it's a sad note, but it's probably a good note to wrap up in. Right. That, you know, we haven't come up with a suitable alternative. We probably, and, we probably haven't. The only thing I would say is that for the, I'm there for 40 years almost, two months short of it, I enjoyed the most of it. I enjoyed it all. It must have been fulfilling. It was. Stressful um, but fulfilling. It was. And I, I can tell very nice stories when I retired. I got, you know, I got lovely cards from people and I was thanked for my kindness and I think I would have had a reputation for being kind. Yeah. I wasn't a softy by any means, but I would I would be kind. I would err in the side of kindness. Yeah. And I've told my children, one of them whom was a guard, I said, you err in the side of kindness, it'll bring you a long way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I enjoyed it. I, I particularly enjoyed it in the community. Right. Because it was lovely to go into a person's own house and get them to recall you their troubles and their fears and their delights yeah. in the company of their own house over a cup of tea. And I was a great man to drink a cup of tea with. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll leave it at that. Indeed. Sean Tully, thanks a million for taking the time. It's been fascinating, interesting, and uh, continue One to enjoy your time. I will. landed me in Ballasloe. Methinks at last an ear to share I opening facts. The doctor took one look at me. He told my mother I was cracked. He sharpened all his pencils.